This is Reinvented. I'm Chris Bordoni, and this show is about the art and science of transformation. In season one of Reinvented, we're exploring what happens when adversity strikes. From finding new sources of strength, to rethinking your identity, and far beyond. Today I speak with Erica Barnett, author of Quitter, a memoir of drinking, relapse, and recovery. I speak with Erica about why she started drinking, her six-year journey to recovery, including what she learned from each failure along the way, and how getting sober has transformed her life. Okay, let's get started. I'm super excited. I've been reading your book. It is an amazing book. I want to dive into it. There's so much about it that's uh, fascinating and insightful and helpful. And um, thanks for writing the book, but let's let's get into it. And let's talk a little bit about your story. Um, so obviously the book is around, it's about alcoholism. It's about recovery. And um, I think this is really interesting. And I have a selfish interest in it in that I have a lot of alcoholism in my family. Um, but admittedly, I'm actually pretty ignorant about the disease or the condition. And so I think just as a starting point, what is alcoholism and what's the line between casual drinking, social drinking, going out, that sort of thing, and having a like a quote unquote problem? Sure. I sort of have a scientific answer and a, um, a subjective answer. The scientific answer is addiction is continued use of a substance despite negative consequences. I mean, there's a lot of other factors that go into the definition of addiction. You know, it's a it's a physical dependency as well as sort of a psychological or mental uh, illness. Mm-hmm. Um, but the but the bottom line is you keep drinking in the case of alcoholism despite bad things that keep happening. Um, and then the the subjective definition that I give people when they ask me, do I have a problem is, well, try an experiment. Quit drinking for a month or six months and just see how that goes. And if that seems like an absurd proposition, um, then you know you probably at least have some kind of something on the spectrum of drinking problems. And I think that there is, you know, there is a spectrum of, you know, of negative use and of substance use disorders that don't necessarily rise to the level of what we would call addiction, which isn't really a super scientific term um, in itself. But uh, you know, it's. If you if you keep drinking and bad things happen, then uh, you may have a problem, and it may be something you need to examine. Got it. That's really helpful. I, I know a lot of people talk about having addictive personalities, and I'm someone who talks about it. Um, but as I'm thinking about it, like, is, is that a real thing? Is that actually a factor in this, or is that something we just sort of made up to explain behaviors that we don't think are beneficial? Well, I think an addictive personality is a made-up concept, but it's related to a lot of personality traits that are very real um, and common to a lot of people who have addiction. So um, one of the factors that really predicts addiction is, um, and and I'm going to use the word addiction, even though it's not super scientific, because substance use disorder is a clunky thing to say. So uh, one of the factors that is is common is uh, compulsive risk-taking type behavior. Um, and uh, and sort of thrill seeking and sensation seeking, and this is by no means universal, but it definitely was true for me. Um, I am a uh, a very kind of um, not compulsive person, but I'm a very impulsive person, and I have historically, you know, made big decisions without a lot of planning, and just I dive into things, and and sometimes that can be a really good character trait. I mean, for me, it's meant that I've you know started a business in a way that was probably. Yeah not something that, you know, your financial advisor would tell you to do, but 
It also can lead to things like um, wanting to get really, really drunk the first time you take a drink. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was definitely me. And I was the same way with drugs. I mean, I just, you know, until I sort of learned to control that impulsiveness, um, I had that, those characteristics of what you would think of as an addictive personality, even though I don't think that is a super helpful term because I think it can be kind of stigmatizing and also make you feel like you can't really change because this is just the way my personality is. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me as being interesting about alcohol and and alcohol dependency or substance abuse is that alcohol is such a prevalent part of our society. It's such a huge part that it seems like it has its own culture and norms. And like, if we were talking about different drugs, like they have their own stigmas, but they're, they're, many of them are more of a fringe thing. And so it doesn't have like all of that cultural stuff or baggage or normalcy that's associated with something like drinking where like a huge percentage of people drink and a huge percentage of people probably do fail that test that you're talking about where it's impacting their life. They'd have a hard time stopping for an extended period of time, but because it's alcohol and we've, for whatever reason, decided that it's, it's okay. And it's something we collectively want to do. It it, it seems like it's so much more complicated to just try to unwind that as an individual. It's really hard. And I I do think, you know, it kind of depends on where you are. Um, We'll just talk about America, where you are in America. Um, a lot of people, my family growing up didn't drink and they they live in the, you know, somewhat rural South and it's a fairly mm-hmm. religious, you know, Baptist culture and like people don't really drink there. So it's interesting, you know, when you say uh, a huge amount of people drink or a huge percentage of people drink, that's totally true in my life. You know, everyone around me pretty much drinks at least casually or socially. And that could mean like drinking once a week. I mean, it doesn't have to be heavy drinking. Sure. And in in my workplace, you know, historically, I mean, I work in journalism, politics. I mean, it's a heavy drinking world. But um, but the fact is, you know, most people in America are not drinkers. Um, and that always surprises people when I, when I bring up it. I don't have the exact percentages on the tip of my tongue, but um, it's, you know, it's a cultural norm in cities and it's a cultural norm in, in certain, um, in certain professions. And, and then you're right. It's, I mean, it's really, it's really hard to, in some ways to say, you know, let's go out for coffee. That was like a completely foreign concept to me when I stopped drinking. Like I was, I, I was a little bit of a shut in at first because I didn't know what to sort of suggest to people. And, um, you know, the first times I quit drinking because my book is about relapse and I relapsed a lot. Uh, one of the things I would do would be go back to bars too mm. soon and um, and sort of be immersed in that culture. And um, and I think that was really, really unhealthy and bad for me. And there, there are a lot of other reasons that I relapsed. And, you know, I think I got sober in part um, through that process of of relapsing so many times. But, you know, going immediately back to the bar just because you don't want to make other people uncomfortable, um, even when you're not comfortable with it, I think that is so common with people who um, who are you know immersed in cultures of drinking like I was, yeah. And I should say I go to well, I don't go anywhere now because we're all in the middle of this pandemic as we're speaking. But um, but before that, I did go to bars and I you know and I don't feel temptation in the way that I that I did. But um, but initially in those first six months, man, it was really bad for me. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So I want to go back to your story. So I think you wrote in your book that you started drinking when you were I think thirteen, um, and then it was mm-hmm. sort of off to the races, if that's a, an accurate way of describing it. I'm, I'm curious to fast forward. When, when did you realize that you had a problem? When did you, it's first occur to you that maybe this isn't healthy for me and maybe I should do something other than continue on this path that I'm on. 
Yeah. Uh, so um, part of my story is that I did that I did start drinking very young, but I didn't really I wasn't a heavy drinker really until I was um, in, you know, around my late 20s, early 30s. Um, I didn't drink in college. And I really uh, it's funny now as a non drinker to think back because I, I don't like the way drinking makes me feel. Um, so uh, it really was, you know, going back to your last question, it really was a cultural thing. I was working at an alt weekly paper in Seattle and the culture was like weed and drinking and I don't like pot. So, um, and I felt very uncomfortable. Um, and I think this is, this is a, um, a common theme, particularly with women. I felt really uncomfortable and like I had, um, a really, you know, bad case of imposter syndrome. I thought I wasn't cool enough. I thought I wasn't good enough. I thought I didn't know what I was doing. And what made me feel more comfortable was drinking socially with people. Um, and then that kind of escalated to drinking alone and drinking, um, you know, pre pre drinking and getting, you know, a little bit loaded before I would even go out so that I could keep up with people because I was building up a tolerance. And so I think when I was, when I really realized, you know, I have a problem, I was probably about 30, 31. And, um, and I realized that, you know, I couldn't really get through a night without without drinking and drinking pretty heavily. Yeah. And um and the, the first thing I did was I went into a detox facility. I mean not the first thing I did, but the first major step I took was I went into detox because I knew at that point that I was physically dependent on alcohol. Yeah. And I thought that was going to be like the cure, like that's it. You know, I get the alcohol out of my system and I'm fine because I thought it was just a physical dependence. And I think after that is when I really started to understand that addiction is more than just a physical dependence. Yeah, I want to talk about that. I'm, I'm looking at your book right now and you said that you did, I think you ultimately did five stints in detox, two inpatient rehabs, two outpatient programs, hundreds of meetings, years of therapy and lost basically everything in the process before you ultimately stopped, right? And so it wasn't as simple for you as just, deciding you're going to quit, showing up, going through the process, and then changing your life, it was way more complicated than, than that. Why is it so hard, right? I'm, I'm imagining, like, it seems like there's this fairy tale of like, and it's not a fairy tale, right? That's the wrong choice of words, but it seems like there's this narrative of you have a problem, so you get help, and then everything's fine, and then you're fixed. But I'm guessing that's, mm -hmm. you know, I know some people where that's not the case, and it clearly wasn't the case for you. What happened? You went the first time and then what happened after that? Well, I got out and things were better. And I thought like a lot of people do, I thought, well, you know, maybe I can drink like a, like a quote unquote normal person. Um, that's a really common phrase, um, in the rooms of Alcoholics mm. Anonymous. It's like, we, we think we're yeah. normal. And, um, and, you know, and I think that another thing that I've, I've found, and this is just totally anecdotal, this is my opinion <laughs> about people who, um, who become addicted and have a lot of trouble getting sober. Um, I think that we are, we tend to be pretty high achieving and self-directed people. I mean, maybe we're not all like, you know, outwardly successful um, in the way that you would think of um, high achievement, but, you know, most of us have overcome some adversity and, um, and we kind of think that we can do, um, we can do anything and, and, and overcome anything. And, um, and so for me, I just thought, well, all I have to do is try yeah. really hard. And every time I've tried really hard at something, it's turned out well, you know, and, um, and it didn't, uh, it didn't seem possible to me that like just sheer willpower and effort wouldn't be enough to do it. And, um, and so that was, that was a really long process of realization. 
Um, when I was in detox, the first thing, you know, they told me when I started kind of talking to the counselor there was you need to go to meetings and, um, and they were, you know, it was very traditional, you know, you've got to go to AA Mm -hmm. meetings and and here's some AA meetings that you have to go to when you get out. And I just thought, you know, screw this. Like, I don't need this. Um, that's for, that's for weak people. And what I think I kind of didn't realize is you have to, when you've built this whole scaffolding of your life around drinking and around, you know, particularly if you have drinking friends, Mm-hmm. Um, but even if it's just sort of a coping mechanism, which for me, it was, it was, I, I was drinking alone and in secret and at home. Um, you've built this, this world where that's your, your lifeline and you have to build a new world and you have to build a new scaffolding around yourself because otherwise, if you don't have community, if you don't have people to talk to, and if you don't have better habits to adopt, um, then you're just going to fall back into the same old patterns because there's just, there's nothing there. Um, and I did, it took a really long time to realize that. I think that part is so interesting. I was having a conversation with, um, a habit change expert and that's one of the things he was talking about was, is that you can't, you can't unmake a habit. You can't unwire your brain, right? That habit exists, that groove exists in your brain. What you can do is you can create new habits, right? And you can change your environment and you can do things like that to not fall into that. But I think if I'm connecting the dots here for you, like there are probably is a certain environment that you could find yourself back in or a certain set of circumstances where it'd be really hard to not, you know, snap back into some of those habits. And so it sounds like understanding that and then designing a new life is such a huge part of, of ultimately trying to move forward. Yeah. And I think the environment for me is more of a mental environment. It's more um, because my outward environment didn't really change. I mean, I continue doing the same job that I've always done, you know, in a different way. Now I work for myself, but um, the, it it was more kind of just creating new habits that, that filled some of the same desires and needs as the old unhealthy Mm -hmm. habit. So, um, you know, for example, like I became, I mean, recently, um, because I have pretty bad anxiety and I need something to do with my days, I became a runner. So I started running, um, you know, I, uh, I started acquiring new skills. I started just basically figuring out ways to fill the time. And that's such a strange thought to me now, because I feel like I never have enough time to do everything that I want to do, but there was a time when I was just passed out drunk a lot of the time or just kind of riding around on the bus because I didn't have a job and um, and just not really doing much, but just lo- looking at the city and drinking. And um, and so there's a tremendous amount of time to fill once I didn't have uh, that, that activity uh, to fill it. And so it was, it was not just changing my outward circumstances. It was changing kind of my mental environment And I mean, I didn't, a lot of people have to get rid of their drinking friends, their drug using friends because it's unhealthy. And for me, all my friends are still here and all of my friends desperately wanted me to quit. Um, So I was lucky in a way because I I didn't have a world of drinking buddies. I had a world of isolation and I had to fill that. Mm. Interesting. That's That's such a fascinating way to think about it. You went through this cycle several times. And in the process of that, did you find that like each time you went through, you were learning something like from each uh, uh, quote unquote failure, right? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you talk about this in your book, how like you, you were failing, but you were learning in the process. Did you feel like each time you were like picking up a new piece of it and then ultimately it snapped into place for you? Or did you feel like you were searching, you were searching, you were searching, and then sort of the last time around, suddenly that all that stuff was there for you? Like, how, how did that feel like in the moment when you're going through that cycle over and over. Yeah, it, I, I think the uh, the former very much so. I think um, in the moment, 
I would, and and in the moment it felt like failure. It just felt like, oh, I'm never going to get this. So in that sense, when I finally did quit drinking, it, it felt like things snapping into place. But what I realized after the fact was I was learning something every single time. And, um, for example, I talk in the book about one of the really big and really most helpful revelations was the last time, the second time I went to rehab, which was the last time um, at an inpatient rehab. And for some reason, um, despite the fact that I've been going to AA meetings for a very long time and listening to people's stories, and a lot of them are, you know, heart-wrenching, um, seeing people at the at a level of addiction that they could not come back from physically was really jarring to me. And it somehow, it did wake me up. And I didn't get sober after that. It still took a while. But there was a realization that like, I could die from this, which I never truly like realized in my body before. Um, and I, I went to that that last rehab and I saw people who were, you know, probably on their way to dying. You know, people with jaundice, people with just physical conditions, multiple organ failures, um, I also realized, you know, I could go to jail and that had never happened mm. before. And that's, to me, that's a really yeah. scary thought. Um, for some reason, you know, the idea of becoming homeless, that felt very real to me. But the idea of like going to jail or dying or, you know, I met a woman who had um, it's a type of um, encephalitis that's it, it's known as um, as wet brain. Um, and, uh, she just sort of couldn't, she had lost all of her long-term memory and her ability to kind of form, um, stories and tell stories about herself and her life. And, um, and it was so sad and it's a condition that once you have it, um, you never recover. And I think I just realized in my bones that like, this is where I was headed because the way I was drinking, I mean, I was drinking as bad or worse than everybody else there. Hmm. And, um, and so as smart as I am and as much as, you know, I think I can beat anything through willpower, um, you can't, you can't beat, you know, the physical impacts of a substance that you're taking into your body. I mean, that just, you can't argue with that. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so each time, I mean, I definitely did learn something and take something that's just one example, but I think it's the most kind of immediate powerful one that has really stuck with me. And every time I've thought about, you know, well, maybe I could, you know, have a sip of that beer that my boyfriend is drinking or whatever. Um, that's the thing that flashes back to me is like a, a, that. And um, just all the time I kind of wasted lying around my house, reading books that I wasn't retaining yeah. and um, you know, and everything that I lost um, it all just kind of cumulatively um, is, is there in the back of my brain now keeping me from, uh, from starting up again. I think it's interesting to think about it as a process where you pick up different pieces and eventually it, it, you know, gels for you. Um, and I think that most things are like that. I think we, like, we want to believe that things happen overnight and that you can just figure it out. But it seems like most of the big changes that people or organizations or communities go through is the product of a lot of little things that happened over a period of time. And, um, and so I think that that, that, I guess that makes sense. It fits in that model. I'm curious from, the first time you asked for help to when you ultimately, you know, got sober, how much time passed? How many years was that in between the start and the most recent? Uh, it was about, so it was 2008 to 2014. So about six years. Yeah. So that's a good amount of time. Yeah. That's, that's a meaningful portion of your life for sure. Um, one of the things that you, one of the things you talked about before was that you don't have to follow a single path to recovery. 
And I think this is a message that definitely resonates with me quite a bit. Um, and you also talk in your book about how conventional wisdom isn't always helpful. Like some of the things people talk about, like rock bottom, the moment of clarity, let go and let God, like some of these things that I think are almost like iconic in, I don't know if, if, if you can even say that in sort of the abuse world, um, maybe aren't so helpful. What was your experience like with that? And, and tell me a little bit more about how you came to this conclusion that, you know, some of these things just aren't helpful. Well, I think there's a couple of things that were not particularly helpful for me. And that I also observed not being helpful for other people. One of the things that, um, that AA does, um, and, and that is meaningful for some people is, and, it, and it's meaningful for me too. I mean, if you ask me how much sobriety I have, I say, you know, I've got six years and I have my little six year coin. But um, the concept of um, of starting over in a day zero is, I think, really can be very self defeating because you ha- you build up in your mind, you know, I have I've achieved this much, and then if you screw up, are you you know you relapse or you just have a slip? Which I, you know, I really think if you have a drink and then you are you realize that's not the path you want to go down and you stop. Um, the idea that you've suddenly lost all that time is just devastating to a lot of people. And I've, I've seen people come back in and just be so ashamed that they, you know, quote unquote, went back out. And, I, you know, I don't think I'm a person, I don't want to do that. I don't want to ever drink again. But at the same time, I didn't, you know, I don't think of it as having lost my time when I relapsed, because as we were just talking about, uh, I was learning things along the way, and I didn't lose all of that learning and all of that knowledge just because I was not able to not drink on that day. Yeah. And so I think that can be um, a really, um, I mean, there's something that drives people away, I think, and keeps people from coming back because they have to say, I have one day. The other thing that I've observed being really bad for people um, in traditional recovery circles is um, this idea of helplessness and sort of giving up your sense of control um, you know, it's, it's in, um, it's in the first, second and third steps. It's admitting you're powerless and you can't do it and letting God take over for you. Um, for me, um, I, you know, just personally was able to sort of think of, to conceive of that for myself in a way that didn't feel like relinquishing power over my own life. But I think for a lot of people, particularly people who have bad experiences with religion, um, who've been abused, who have, um, you know, a lot of people who have victimized them over the years. I mean, this happens all the time. And the idea of yeah. relinquishing power and sort of admitting that um, that that you caused your problems and God is the only one that can solve them, that can be, um, you know, that can be really damaging depending on how you conceive of, you know, of God in your life and how you conceive of your own power. And I think it's bad, particularly for marginalized people, for a lot of women, yeah. Um, that can be, um, you know, it's just, it's, you can, you can think your way around it, but, um, it can be a lot harder if you've had those bad experiences. And I feel very fortunate that I was able to, you know, to come into the, the rooms of AA and, and think my way through that stuff. But that's really me talking from a place of privilege. You, when we were talking before, you mentioned how, um, you love cognitive behavioral therapy and that was helpful for you, but for a friend, it stressed him or her out. And I think about, you know, meditation or mindfulness and like, it's really great. And a lot of people really benefit from it, but some people sit down and it just makes them really anxious because they have all these thoughts that are just racing through their head. 
And, and so that's one of the things that I think about a lot is that there is the, like what's great for one person isn't necessarily great for someone else. And in fact, can be less than great, can actually be make a situation worse. When I think about this world, AA is like clearly the big, the big name, what everyone identifies with, but are there different modalities? Are there different ways to get sober? Like, are there many different paths so you can find something that works with you, particularly if you try something and it doesn't work the first time? Are there other paths that you can go down? Sure. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I mean, you mentioned meditation and like my body sort of clenches up (laughs) (laughs) and actually meditation is like a big part of AA that I have never been able to get, you know, fully on board. Well, I'm lying. I've never been able to get on board with it because I just can't do it. I am like, uh, you know, clinical anxiety. I just am physically like thinking about meditation makes me very anxious, but CBT is great because I'm a writer and it's all writing. Um, are there other modalities? Absolutely. I mean, in the same way that there are all kinds of therapy and I, and I really think, you know, we didn't really talk about therapy yet, but therapy was such a huge part of uh, my own story and my own ability to, um, to kind of see what the roots of my problems were and see better ways to cope. Um, so I recommend therapy uh, to everybody and there. Are, I'm not an expert on other modalities, but um, that is, that is a super helpful part uh, because in AA, um, and, and I think in a lot of kind of um, self-help and support groups in general, there's only so much you can talk about, you know, my childhood and my, you know, the terrible things that happened to me because it's supposed to be positive and it's supposed to be affirming, right? And in therapy, you can talk about all that crap. And, yeah. you know, you are supposed to get to an affirming place, um, but you can take a long and meandering way to get there. I think, um, you know, there's all kinds of ways that uh, are harm reduction based um, modalities of recovery that, you know, I say recovery and not necessarily sobriety, because for a lot of people, you know, there's this concept that better is better. And, um, and again, for me, I'm an all or nothing person. I'm not capable of drinking less. I'm just not. Um, That's something I know in in my heart. But um, for a lot of people, things like, um, there's a, I'm blanking on the name of it and I apologize, but there's, there are types of um, reward systems where um, you can get, um, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, cash reward or benefit for um, coming in with, uh, with a clean drug test, for example. Hmm. Um, There are, um, there are, there's smart recovery, which is a type of recovery that is not um, religiously or spiritually based. I mean, AA is not a religious program, but um, but it is somewhat spiritual, no matter how you slice it. Even if you go to an atheist agnostic group, it's 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 hard to divorce the God from AA, right? So there are non completely non secular, non spiritual um, recovery modes um, and support groups as well. Um, they're not as well known, they're not as big, but you can find them. Um, and a contingency management is the phrase I was looking for before. That's okay. that's one of the modalities that's based on a reward structure. Um, and, you know, and, and like I said, there's harm reduction, which is reducing use. Um, and, uh, and for a lot of people that, that really can improve your life, uh, particularly if you're a drug user, spending a lot of money, um, you know, figuring out a way to use less, uh, really works for some people, you know, just cause it doesn't work for me. doesn't mean I'm going to judge you for, yeah. uh, for being on a different program and a different path. Is that the difference? Like, is sobriety would would be that you don't use at all? Recovery is it's I don't know healthier, more moderated version of it. It's what it means okay. for you. Yeah, 
I mean, I consider myself to be in recovery. Um, but I also, if, if for, for you recovery is, you know, you don't do heroin anymore, but you still drink and that has improved your life, then great. Yeah. I mean, I think that is recovery. Yeah. Interesting. So there's, there's, um, there's an element of defining what success is for, for you, for a person. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. So what did you ultimately do once you got sober? So we've talked about this a little bit in a previous conversation, but what did, what were your priorities? Where'd you go from there with, you mentioned having, you know, more time, having more space in your life. I think we've talked about you feeling better, but like, what did you do with all that new energy and space in your life? Well, the first thing I did was I got a job. (laughs) Um, and, um, and that actually created space, uh, in a weird way. I, I was unemployed for, um, for part of my sobriety, um, because I had, I had been fired from my last job. I started a company, um, and with a, with a partner from, um, a previous job is journalism website, local politics, uh, website. And, um, we gotten bought uh, by a larger company and they are the ones who fired me. And so I didn't have a job. I had lost what I thought was the most important thing in my life, which was my work. And, um, and so, so I was unemployed for a while and I just kind of went to meetings and, got my finances in order. That was a really big um, part of my recovery. And I think a lot of people, because addiction is very, very expensive. And uh, so I started kind of figuring out how I was going to pay off my debt. Um, and I um, and then I got a job that was pretty, um, I mean, it was a good job, but it was uh, not that time consuming working at a nonprofit. And then I just kind of took time to start rebuilding. I mean, if you, if you do any program of recovery, I think some of it is always um, some version of making amends to people. And, you know, for me, that was paying off debt and it was making amends in the literal, in the AA way of calling people and telling them I'm sorry for the harm that I caused and asking them what I could do to repair it. Um, So I spent a lot of time just doing that stuff at first for the first year or so. And then after that, I, um, let's see, I got a book deal. (laughs) I started a website and I quit my job and I restarted the business that I, um, I had been uh, doing before. Yeah. And now, I mean, my time is just, you know, it's six years, six plus years on and uh, my time is always full, but it was just kind of a slow process of like figuring out, you know, first of all, which damage that I've done am I going to chip away at today? And yeah. then, and then trying not to cause further damage and, uh, right. and then just, figuring out, you know, okay, well, what do I do with my life now? Cause I can do anything. I, I mean, I have total freedom now because I don't have this addiction, um, you know, controlling every minute of every day. I want to come back to that. Cause I think that's, that's such an amazing storyline, but I, I just, for a moment, what is it like to call someone up and say, Hey, I'm, I'm sorry. I want to repair this. Or like, I owe you, I've owe you a phone call for a while. What's it like to actually make those phone calls? Well, the reason it's the ninth step is because you can't do it (laughs) (laughs) at first because it is, it's so scary. I mean, you know, just apologizing to somebody for a small thing Mm -hmm. is hard. Right. Um, and, uh, the first time I, the very first one that I did, um, my, um, my AA sponsor had me write down a list of, um, of every person that, um, that I resented. So this is like part of the process, you know, you write down all the people you resent and, um, and you go through that and that's the, the fourth step um, and the fifth step. And then um, when you make the amends, 
I wrote down a list of everybody I was going to make amends to, everybody I thought I might make amends to, and everybody I wasn't going to ever. And um, and then she said, um, "Well, these are these are all the people that you're going to make amends to. These three lists, <laughs> and um, and I need you to put your finger down on one." And so I closed my eyes and I put my finger down on one, and that was the first one. Wow! And it was really hard. I wrote the whole thing out and I showed it to her, and she pointed out the ways in which I was deflecting blame hmm. and the ways in which I was saying, you know, well, I'm sorry I did this, but here's why. And when you're making an apology to somebody, I mean, as we've seen, you know, in the in the media uh, with all these um, men and and me too, and just you know the kind of bad public apology, you can't say here's why I did it. Um, You have to just say, here's my part. And so I wrote it down, I edited it, and I read it to the person. And I was so nervous, my hands were shaking. And it was in person, because it was somebody locally, and I had them come over to my house. And um, it was awful and terrifying. And and then I was lucky, because that first person was like, oh my God, like, I never thought I'd hear this from you. And you don't need to do anything except just, you know, don't drink again. And they didn't all go that well, but they got easier. Yeah. And, you know, and some of them didn't go well at all. But um, even the ones that didn't go well, I felt good about ultimately, you know, because I had done my part and I had done everything I felt like I could do. And even if the other person didn't accept it or was like, okay, whatever, I still hate you. Like, fine. I, but I did the part that was on me. It's interesting. As I'm listening to you, like I'm, and this is uh, this is really inappropriate, but I'm like so excited for you, like imagining going through that process and like how much how how much you must learn and how much you must grow in that moment and how that's like such a fantastic outcome. I think it's good for everybody to do, to be honest. I don't think you need to be in a recovery program to do it. I think it's just a good thing to do. Yeah, I have the same thought when I was when I'm reading your book because uh, like I read it and it's beautifully written. It's it's an amazing book. It's so moving. You write incredibly well. But I have this, like, I'm conflicted in that, like, you're writing about awful things, right? You're writing about some super difficult moments yeah. in your life, but I'm enjoying it. And, like, the fact that I'm enjoying it feels really weird, just like as I'm listening to you talk about these, like, really difficult conversations. But I think it's, it, it, you know, there are some, it sounds like some really wonderful things that came out of it. And, it you know, it sounds like there's, um, you're able to take the good with the bad, I suppose. So credit to you. There's there's this really weird thing that um, that happens when you go to recovery meetings. And, and I, I'm sure this is also true in like Al-Anon and other types of groups. But um, people say I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. Yeah. And that made me, that pissed me off so much at first. Like <laughs> it just, I just thought that it, you, you sound brainwashed and crazy. Um, and then what what happens if you just kind of keep you know, keep stick with your sobriety and stick with your recovery and and go through some of these processes, like making amends to people is you become really grateful. And I, I can honestly say, like, I am glad that I have an addiction because I forced me through this process. And I don't wish an addiction on anybody, but it forced me through this process of really reckoning with myself and reckoning with my relationships with other people in a deeper way than I had ever done before. And like, my friendships are so much deeper and more real. And it's not just because I'm sober and it's based on, you know, an honesty, but it's because we've had these deep conversations about, you know, what does, what does our friendship mean? And, you know, I got a call from a friend um, a few weeks ago who was like, I read your book and I didn't realize how, what an important figure I was in your life. And I just didn't know that at the time. And I didn't know I was getting through to you. 
And, um, and like, we have a much deeper and better relationship now, not because I wrote a book, but because, you know, we've sort of had those conversations about what our friendship means. And, um, and I'm just like, I'm, a, you know, this is incredibly cheesy, but I'm such a believer in friendship. And, you know, it's, I, I think it's more important than, you know, relationships, romantic relationships or anything else. And so um, being able to kind of keep my friends and, and, and deepen those relationships um, has been just one of the best gifts of, of this whole process. One of the questions I get asked a lot is, could I have gotten here without going through what I went through? Mm-hmm. And, and I find that to be a really interesting question. And I, I think, I won't tell you what I think, maybe, maybe after, but I'm curious for you, like, could you have gotten to this place where you learned all these things, you had these realizations, you repaired your friendships without going through an experience like this, or is it just part and parcel? I mean, I think everybody has an experience um, in their life that is, you know, to some degree or other, you know, traumatic and, and per, you know, sort of yeah. character building. So I don't want to say that I had to go through this um, particular example of it. That said, I mean, this is the only life I've known. If I had, um, if I had not, if I hadn't get, gotten sober, I'd be dead. I really believe that. I think I'd be dead now. Um, but um you know, I can't, I can't speak to what it would have been possibly or how long it would have taken for me or if it ever would have happened that, you know, I would have had these deep conversations. I think certainly it hastened that. And, um, and, you know, and that's why I am really grateful for it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to speak to a counter narrative that didn't happen. Exactly. I feel the same way. And, but I think, I think what seems most likely is I got there a lot faster on things. I'd like to believe that with other experiences and some, you know, the benefit of time, I I would have gotten there and become a a nicer person, a more patient person, all those things. But I think it would have taken me a lot longer. Um, And so I think there's other ways that people can get there without going through the stuff that I went through or other people go through. But um, for me, I think it really, it was, it was a helpful kick in the ass that I needed at various points. Yeah. I don't think adversity like makes people, Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't think it makes you into a different person than you're going to be already, but, but I agree. I mean, I think it just hastens it. And a lot of it is like, is also just age. Yeah. I've realized more and more that you just, you change as you get older and maybe it would have taken me until I was in my fifties, you know, or maybe it would have never happened, but, yeah. um, but I'm definitely, I, I was inevitably going to be a different person at 43 than I was at 23 and thank God. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, one, one thing that occurs to me is, so you've, you've, you've been in recovery for several years now, and is there a time at which you start to get more confidence? Like I've done it for six years, therefore, like I can, I can do more, right? Like, is there a moment when you start to build that confidence and you worry less about relapsing or is it something where you're kind of always looking over your shoulder and it, and it's a possibility? Well, I think it is. I mean, it's just, it's definitely always a possibility because I mean, just you look at the, you look at the data. I mean, people, I know people who have been sober for 25 years and then relapsed and, um, and drank themselves to death, right. Or, or overdosed, um, and died. I mean, I've seen that happen, um, just in recovery circles, but, um, but you do, I would say actually for me, I mentioned earlier, you know, the first six months were are a place where, you know, I took, I was on, um, a drug called gabapentin, which helped mm-hmm. me, um, I'm not advertising that drug. It just happened to be helpful for me in reducing cravings. Um, and I went off that drug, you know, after about six months and I started going back into places that I didn't feel safe initially. And you start, I mean, it's, it's weird. You get this indifference, or at least I got this indifference to alcohol that I never thought would be possible. So 
if I see, you know, bottles of alcohol, I mean, I might think, huh, I wonder what that tastes like. Or, oh, I remember, you know, I really liked tequila. So I remember the taste of that and that'll never go away. So there's always that possibility um, that, that, you know, is in the back of my mind, but you do get more confident for sure. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing because I think that um, we should be able to do whatever everybody else can do, you know, with the absence of drinking or with the absence of the drug that, you know, we're addicted to. Yeah. Um, there's no point in getting sober if you're going to live a, a constrained life where you're afraid to do things. You know, for me, travel was a really big um, trigger. Going to the airport was a big trigger. I was an anxious flyer, which I'm not anymore, strangely, but um, when I was drinking, I was. And so I would get just wasted at the airport. And so for a while I was like, oh my God, like, how am I ever going to go back to the airport again? But, you know, you have to, I mean, at first it was hard to go to the grocery store because alcohol, as we talked about, is everywhere. It's not, you know, it's like going to, um, you know, down the street and there's a heroin dealer on every corner. I mean, <laughs> you know, if that's, it, yeah, it's just the odds are not in your so favor. ubiquitous. So you have to <laughs> learn to live with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. Um, I want to ask about two other things, thinking about other people. And I know you spend a lot of your time helping other folks. And I think one of the, one of the good things we talked about before is since you wrote your book and just in general, people reach out to you and ask for help. And I think it credit to you that you're, you're available and you, it sounds like you really enjoy doing it. And I know that that, at least from my own experience can be incredibly rewarding, but two things, one for someone who's listening to this or thinking about, you know, their relationship with alcohol or other substances, where do you go if you're kind of questioning where you currently are? Like what, what is the next step that someone can take to learn more and figure out, you know, if they maybe do want to get a little bit of help? Well, I think one good thing, there are online assessments that you can take. So you don't need to actually go to um, a doctor or, I mean, talking to your doctor is a good idea, but a lot of doctors aren't trained uh, in yeah. addiction. So that might not be as helpful as you think. So I think doing an online assessment um, is really useful. Um, assessments are quite uh, good predictors of whether you, you know, should, you know, continue getting, um, getting down the path of getting help. Um, you know, they'll just ask you questions about your use and about the consequences. Um, I think, um, you know, if you are not entirely opposed to the idea, um, particularly now, because there's so many meetings on Zoom where you can really truly be anonymous, mm. um, I think going to a support group is a good idea. They'll, you know, AA may not be your thing, but I think it's a good place to just start. So you can kind of, um, even if you don't buy into the whole philosophy and the 12 steps, that's fine. One great thing about going to meetings of people with addiction issues and people who've gotten over them is um, that you can hear people's stories. And for me, when I was first going to AA and thinking this is BS and having no interest in participating in any way, um, what was helpful was just sitting in the back and listening to people and just hearing their stories. Yeah. And because it just made me feel like, oh my God, like, I am not, I'm not a loser. I'm not a failure. I'm not alone. Yeah. Um, and you can do that on zoom now and you can just like put a name up there, you know, verify that you're a human being and not, you know, a troll or whatever. And you can just sit there and you can just say, I I'm just, if somebody calls on you just say, Hey, I'm just here to listen hmm. and nobody's going to pressure you. Yeah. Um, I, that, I think that's really useful. I mean, e truly, even if you don't get into the whole AA thing, just hearing people's stories and, and feeling like you're not alone is helpful. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Those are great ideas. Um, the other the other question I had was thinking about loved ones. So if you have a, a partner, if you have a family member, and 
you're worried about them, right? There's so many people who are in that situation. And obviously there's a lot of people in your life who are in that situation at various points. What have you learned about how you help other people? I mean, you've talked about how like at the end of the day, you have to do the work, right? You did the work and that's kind of the common denominator with, with recovery or sobriety is that no one can do it for you. But you also, I imagine, got a lot of help along the way. So as you think about being a, a loved one, a caretaker, whatever it is, what are some of the things that you learned and what's helpful for people to keep in mind? Well, I think, you know, the most helpful thing, um, ironically, that I told my uh, my parents was to go to Al-Anon. And again, doesn't I, there are other types of support groups, but um, but the reason that ended up being helpful is that what they learned is um, is that they couldn't, they can't, you can't do it for your loved one. Um, and so they learned to sort of separate themselves um, in a way from me and stop trying to kind of push me to do things that I was not ready to do. And then, and, and more importantly, stop feeling responsible for me and my mm. behavior. Because ultimately, as you say, it was on me. I was the one who had to make the change, and they felt as though it was uh, it reflected badly on them, or it was a you know it was their responsibility in some way to get me to behave in a different way. And you just you cannot change other people's behavior. Um, you can be loving, you can be there, you cannot enable. Um, you know, don't I don't think it's um, it's helpful <clears throat> to drink around somebody who is. Uh, trying to quit drinking. And I don't think it's helpful to get drunk with somebody who is uh, a problem drinker, but it's also not helpful um, to you as the loved one or to them to say, you know, um, I need you to do this and I'm going to be your accountability partner. You know, um, that's uh, as counterintuitive as it may sound, that's not helping and it's actually hurting you because it's making you the responsible party. Um, and you can only fail if the person is not ready to get yeah. sober. So, um, you know, it's really hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's a delicate balance between enabling, which I think is a real thing and, um, you know, and, and trying to, uh, trying to be helpful, but pushing the person is, and making yourself responsible is not the way to, um, to get somebody sober because you can't get somebody sober ultimately. And I also, you know, I know people who in extreme circumstances have had to say, look, like, this is an ultimatum. If you keep drinking, um, I'm going to need you to move out of the house. Mm -hmm. And and then I've seen those people have to move out of the house. So, um, you know, I mean, read about codependency, I think, is like the is a, a really important um, piece of advice that yeah. I've heard. You know, learn about codependency, learn about what you can actually do and don't take the other person's problems on as your responsibility. That's awesome. Erica, this is this has been incredibly helpful. And thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for writing this book. I'm super excited to finish it. I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's called Quitter, A Memoir of Drinking, Relapse, and Recovery. Um, and I just, I'm, I have so much respect, I think, for the work that you've done and for what you've gone through and the fact that you're sharing it now with other people. And, and I know we've already talked about a lot of different parts that resonate with me and other folks. Um, and so thanks for putting that out there and thanks for doing your part. Thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for checking out this episode. If this was your first time listening to Reinvented, be sure to click the subscribe button now. If you've been enjoying the show for a while, don't forget to leave a rating in Apple Podcasts. And if you know someone that would love this episode, take a moment to spread the word. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.